O sing to the Lord a new song. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us worship the Lord our God. Salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. The Lord helps them and rescues them. We give you all thanks and praise, O God, for you show love and kindness to the grateful and even to the ungrateful. And you raise us all to new life in glory and strength. You created all that is, shaping the earth with your own hands and raising creatures from the dust to fill it. Whenever famine or wickedness threatened your people, you have sent a Savior to preserve their lives. You sent your child, Jesus Christ, to reveal your nature to us all. He embodied your desire to go on loving even in the face of hostility and hatred. When he was killed by the enemies of life, you raised him in power with a glorified body which will never die. 
Now he is a life-giving Savior, saving all who seek refuge in you and preparing all your faithful children for rebirth into the life of your kingdom. Therefore, with our hearts lifted high, we offer you thanks and praise at all times through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. seated. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those gathered here in the sanctuary and everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord for worship. And because we gather in the name of the Lord, our word of welcome is one with no qualifying adjectives attached to it. All are welcome in God's house, therefore all are welcome here at First Church. We hope we'll, uh, I would like to invite everyone to come to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right and down the short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have prepared uh, some cookies and fruit and opportunity, most importantly, for us to speak to one another directly. We will trust, of course, that you can keep your mask on except when you're eating your cookie and slide it down and slide it back up again, and that way we will keep one another safe during this, uh, during this strange season we're all living through. I'd like to commend to your attention those items that are on the back of the bulletin for announcements. You'll note that we have an ongoing uh, evening service, I'm sorry, ongoing contemplative practices series on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. That, that is led by the Reverend Margaret Somerville, and you can register it for it through the church website. You'll also see that we will have two services for Ash Wednesday on March 2nd, one at noon and the other at 7 p.m. I will look forward to seeing you there. Let us now continue our worship with our confession of sin. The world says that we get what we deserve. When we believe that, we hide our true selves from God and pretend to be without sin, or deny the reality of our falling short of our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches us the truth. Grace is God's gift to us. God is merciful. God's love is the final word. Trusting in the grace, mercy, and love of God, let us confess our sin, first together and then in silence. God of love, who created us in love, redeemed us in love, and command us to love, we confess that we have not loved our enemies as ourselves. We have not given to all who ask of us. We have looked to our own interests first. We have sinned. Forgive us, we pray, for our failures to love as you have loved us. Forgive us for thinking you will settle from us from or for us. Renew within us the commitment to follow your ways, to discipline our lives their faith may be built, and your love be made known. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray.
God's grace overflows and brings us new life. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
our first scripture reading comes to us from the book of Genesis in the 45th chapter. Starting at the third verse. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Our second reading comes from 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter starting at verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow now, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but of bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as God has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Our gospel lesson is taken from the sixth chapter of Luke's gospel narrative. We pick up there, continuing the Sermon on the Plain, which we began last week, beginning at the 27th verse and continuing through the 38th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I really don't have any enemies, or at least I don't know of any. I've had some nuisance neighbors on occasion, though, and they certainly try one's patience 
to the point that loving them is a heavy ask. We've had some doozies through the years, actually, but no one has ever topped the neighbor that we began referring to as Mrs. Bucket. We'll see some ages revealed here. Who knows who Mrs. Bucket is? It's Hyacinth Bouquet, spelled B-U-C-K-E-T. She's the snobbish, house-proud star of the BBC's classic sitcom, Keeping Up Appearances, and though she presents herself as the modicum of modesty, she is, in fact, the very definition of a legend in her own mind. She answers the phone with a trilling, the bouquet residence, the lady of the house speaking, and has an opinion on absolutely everything. Her neighbors lived in a state of constant nervous exhaustion. Now, have you ever lived next to anybody like that? It is an experience, let me tell you. To be perfectly frank, loving this neighbor was going to require something akin to sainthood. And to be, well, even more frank, I wasn't interested in sainthood. I was interested in being able to go out in my yard without feeling like I had to hide from somebody. So, I feel that I have a certain amount of experience-based authority that can only be gained by living next to someone like that. That's the hard thing about attempting to love one's neighbor. It's always harder when, well, it's harder. And at times it seems well nigh unto impossible. There are times when we may will ourselves to do that, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and fail, much as Paul willed himself to do good and found himself doing the very opposite of what he intended to do. So if loving our neighbors is a challenge, loving our enemies is going to be a heavy ask. What's more, Jesus doesn't stop with telling us to love our enemies. He goes on to get really specific about what that means. As I noted last week, sometimes it is easier to stay in the abstract when it comes to some of these teachings, but Jesus won't leave it alone. He insists on confronting the problem of human sin by holding up a mirror in front of us and telling us what love ought to look like. You know, it's the heavy asks that give us the greatest insight into who God is and what God is about. Just ask Joseph. Forgiving his brothers was, in fact, loving his enemies because of everything they did to him. Now, sure, from their perspective, they thought he had it coming for his haughty heirs. But there's just a special variety of forgiveness required when your brothers have thrown you into a pit, sold you to a passing caravan, where you end up in another country where you don't speak the language and your boss's wife is coming on to you. Eh, Joseph did toy with them a little bit before he forgave them. That could be understandable. But in the end, he did forgive them. And that was a heavy ask. That's some serious forgiveness. That's the kind of love that doesn't happen just overnight. The kind that we don't just conjure up because we feel like it. 
learning to love a neighbor, learning to love an enemy, really learning to love all people is an exercise in learned behavior. I don't want to suggest that it is easy to learn to love contrary people, but I do want to suggest that learning to love is a part of learning Christian faith and not the easy part. Memorizing the Ten Commandments is easy. Well, it's easy enough. I had to memorize them for an Old Testament final when I was in seminary, and they more or less stuck. Memorizing them is easy. But seeing that they are love is harder. Learning to love, if it is an authentic love, is an exercise in practice. It is an exercise in faith practice. It is an exercise in the deliberate cultivation of the practices that lead to the faith we want to form in which we hope to live. Now, when we discipline our approach to faith, we don't change God or God's relationship with us through our actions. We change our way of relating to the world around us so that we reflect God's relationship with us. It's like when we teach young children that giving is important by giving them canned goods to bring to church during a, a food drive or getting up out of our pews to put a dollar bill in the plate, even though we have already given online, as a tangible act of worship. The summation of these faith practices over time cultivate in us our faith. It's taking a disciplined approach to life so that when we encounter the need for forgiveness or the need to love difficult people, we understand that we have to forgive and we have to love so that we can be changed. It's all part of learning to be faithful. And it just doesn't happen haphazardly. Jesus isn't making up this sermon on the plain out of whole cloth. He's expounding on the law, which we encounter in the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, or our Old Testament, and it forms the heart of what it meant to be the people of God in Jesus' day. And he's reminding anyone who will listen that the heart of the law is love. Do you think of the law that way? Have you ever thought of God's law as an expression of God's love? In many ways, I think that goes against the very fabric of what it means to understand the law because we so often engage in a convenient anachronism. We think that because we mean the law in the sense of courtrooms and judges and the Constitution, that God means in that way too. And I suppose in the sense of providing order, that isn't too inaccurate of an understanding. The law, as God gives it, does provide order to, soul, to culture. But that isn't really its primary intent. And that is where a biblical understanding of the law differs from our modern understanding. And I hope that our lawyers and judges will forgive me for this gross simplification of the concept of a social contract 
But we assume that you don't kill me and I won't kill you. Don't harm me and I won't harm you. Don't steal from me and I won't steal from you. And if anyone does, there are consequences. I realize this is fast and loose on some very important concepts, but it works for our purposes today. The law, as God gives it, though, is meant to be more than just a provision of order. It is meant to be the basis of a covenant community. And this is key. A community that distinguishes itself from all other communities by its relationship with the living God. And then all other communities will be blessed by the law as they see who God is through the community that God has called into being with the giving of the law. And it was hard to be the people of God in Jesus' day. Romans expected their cut of everything you earned. The emperor was a demigod, so we're already right up against idolatry with that. Their soldiers were milling around in Judea, and the notion of loving one's enemy is something that God's people would have run up against every single day. It's hard to be in community with people you cannot abide. It is hard to stay in community with folks who, if they got their way, would make your life miserable. The temptation would be to hate. So instead, Jesus offers an alternative. And ironically, it is the same alternative that has been there all along, contained in the credo of our faith, that God is love. Now, if you hang around churches long enough, you will inevitably hear about the Trinity, that doctrine of the church that declares that God is three in one and one in three, and tries doggedly to hang on to monotheism while simultaneously offering us three different faces or hypostases uh, or expressions, if you will, of who God is. And we tend in the church to fixate on the paradox of monotheism with a triune God, and I think that risks missing the point of the doctrine. Getting up, hung up on the numbers misses the point that God is as God wants us to be. The commandment to love gives us insight into God's character of self-giving communal love. It's who God is. And it's who God wants us to be. That's the point. God is as God wants us to be. In the beginning, the Bible says, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And so God created humankind in God's image. We are made in the image of God. And the heart of the law 
is the command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus ratchets it up a notch and says we have to love our enemies also. These are not mutually exclusive thoughts. They are tied together in the practice of faith. But let's be honest. We don't always live that way, do we? Do we live as though we are made in God's image, loving and valuing one another? Maybe on our best days, but I think we could be swiftly disabused of that notion by watching how folks relate to one another. If we believe we're living like we're made in the image of God, just watch cable news for a little while. They'll take care of that in a skinny minute. Jesus is calling us back to our humanity in this Sermon on the Plain. To be human, to be in God's image, is to be at one with our Creator and with our neighbor, even though we know that's not what happens most of the time. We don't live into the fullness of our humanity, but Jesus does. And that is the fully human part of that old Chalcedonian formula of fully human, fully divine that you may have run across in church life. And therein lies our hope. Again, not that we are always faithful to our humanity, faithful to God's vision of who we can be, but that Jesus is, and that in him we are redeemed and given our hope. God created us to be human. And because we so often live beneath our humanity, God came to be human so that we might be made whole. And we have to think about that and let it seep in, deep in, or else the faith that we are cultivating just becomes words, words, words. That sort of makes the problem of a nuisance neighbor pale, now doesn't it? It also makes the dehumanization of anyone impossible if we are living with our Christian faith, living as the people of God. The idea that we should love our neighbors and even love our enemies and in the process value ourselves can sound at times like a broken record, I suppose. But it is the gospel. And if you don't think it needs to be repeated over and over and over again, just go out there. Just go out there for a while. It'll beat you down if you don't have a vision of redemption. This isn't really a question of nuisance neighbors. It's a question of living into our baptism, living into our full humanity, because in Jesus Christ we encounter what humanity is, and in our baptism we are called to live in that full humanity. In the end... This is who God is. So maybe that command 
to love our enemies boils down to nothing more than this. It's not about you, and yet it is at the same time. It's not about you because it's about God and who God is. And it is about you because who God is is the God who loves. You know the problem with love? People think it's weak. People think it's sentimental. People think it's romantic nonsense, and if not, Hollywood will quickly help you get there. And if we don't think in God's terms, maybe it is. But that's not the way God loves, and that's not what God calls us to practice. There is no story of love that I can think of to sum up this sermon short of the gospel. But that's the point. Because of Jesus, loving our enemies is not just a heavy ask. It's who we are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us together share our common faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. God is generous beyond measure. With thanksgiving for God's generosity in our lives, let us be generous as we offer ourselves and our resources for the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ in the world. We invite you to bring forward your offering during this time, if you wish, or after the service. And we also have ways that you can give online if you go to our church website.
holy God, your cross stands before us as a light that shows us our failure and our salvation through your Son. We thank you for forgiving us and for coming among us to heal our pain and resentments. We yearn for your word and praise you for your love. You who preserves life, who sends among your people caretakers and peacemakers, who gives us scientists and inventors, give your people new eyes to behold the needs of your creation. Lead us into fields of wheat and pools of clean water. Shelter the earth with clouds. Nurture the soil with sun. Make our gratitude so profound that with joy we can love and guard what you have created for our very lives. O giver of prayer that groans within us, teach us to pray for our enemies. We whisper some of them now before you in our hearts. Be with them, guard them from harm, and guide them in the way of your light. Save us from self-righteousness and help us begin our lives anew. Heal the nations, mighty Lord. Reign peace on all people. Give hope to the hopeless and love to the lonely. Surprise the leaders of all nations with your joy. And we lift up people around the world who suffer from war and natural disasters and famine. We cry out for reconciliation and plenty. We beg comfort for the sick, O God. Make whole the broken, make wise the foolish, humble the powerful, make glad the hearts of those who tend our loved ones. And for any who are in pain, give them release and rest. Speak love to all those who call on you and to all who cry out silently. Trusting in the mercy of your never-failing wisdom, we commend into your hands all for whom we pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
is as God wants us to be. Now, someone this week is going to annoy you. They are going to try your patience. Try loving them. God knows that's what Jesus is doing for us. Now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.